in this episode with David McKee. That meant I could take it in the real world. And another of my students got me to set up a company, got a, a, my first contract. And I wanted to see that it was relevant. So I used the consulting to check out what I was teaching and I got quicker, stronger feedback. Yeah. If you fuck up in the classroom, students are very tolerant. <laughs> you know, if someone's paying you a lot of money to deliver yeah. and you don't get it, then you know about it very quickly. David, what's your philosophy? And I said, I try to give more than I get. And she looked me in the eye and said, and you've never succeeded, have you? I just rock back, you know, because I'm trying to give, I get more back. So I keep trying to give, I get more back. I keep trying to give, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like, you know, you asked me to come this podcast. Oh, Steve's, Steve's a good guy. He's me. I'll, I'll do that. And I've got so much from it. Mm. You know, I've got much more than I've, I've given. When someone's really there, you know, when you said you were nervous about this one, you know, I thought, what the fuck's he got to be nervous about? <laughs> you know? and, uh, but that nerves are part of it. You know, unless you've got nerves, you're not emotionally invested. That's right. I still shit myself before classes. A massive wave of mediocrity. You know, people are frightened and they're not, people are not speaking. Organizations are dying because they haven't got the energy of the people inside them. And we need to think differently. And neurodiverse people think differently. David, thank you. I'm going to say thank you, not for being here. I'm going to leave that until later, but thank you um, for being a part of my life. I think it's important for me to acknowledge here that I do know you. Um, being a professor of leadership, when I did my MBA, which seems like a million years ago now, it's probably 12 or 13 years ago, um, that's when I first met you. And we've kept in touch since, albeit probably not as often as as I should, because I'm crap at that. Um, but when we have caught up, I always feel like we only spoke the previous week, which I think says something about the relationship that we've got and it says something about you um, personally as well. So I, I just wanted to thank you for the influence that you've had on me. Uh, I do appreciate that, and I didn't want to forget to say that um, as we get wrapped up in conversation. Um, and, and obviously, thank you for being here and taking time to come and talk to us today. As I said before the interview, I'm a little bit more nervous than I normally am today. I feel a, like a, a, there's a level of responsibility that I've got to try and draw out of you some of the wisdom, because this is what this show is all about, is wisdom worth sharing. And I know that you've got so much and you've imparted so much in my direction over the years. Um, and, I, and I feel like I need to do you the justice of, of a good interview, but also people who are listening or watching for them to, to get 
something out of this interview because of who you are and what you've got to offer. So I, I've got a few nerves about it. I'll be honest with you. And actually, what I've what I've done here is I've just I've written a few notes of um, of how you're described uh, on like university websites and uh, online and stuff like that. So um, Professor David McKee combines consulting and research in strategic communication and leadership with special interests in the areas of action learning, complexity science creativity and innovation, emotional intelligence, and public relations. It's a mouthful. There's a lot there. There's a lot in there. But I know there's actually there's so much more to you than that as well, <laughs> if that's possible. Um, you've co-authored co -authored five books. But you also working on others at the minute as well, possibly? Uh, no, I'm uh, re-engineering my writing. All right. Okay. All right. And I, I love this, this, this line, and it appears in numerous different searches. He's a Scot by birth, an Australian by naturalization, and a resident of New Zealand by choice. I think that's quite cool. So that's, that's other people trying to summarize you. Um, but I think that's just the start of it, to be honest with you. Um, and, so, and so what I want to do today is talk about life's work, your life, your work, um, and your legacy. Um, and for people to hear from, from you, um, what, what you've learned uh, along the way, uh, what's important to you and what your influences are and things like that. So if it's all right with you, what I'd like to do is start, uh, not at, right at the beginning, but let's go back because I've got an interest in this and, and you and I have never discussed this before, but um, what life was like or what you were like, David, as uh, a young lad growing up in Scotland. So if you could give us a little bit of context of where you've come from and how life started for you, that would be great. With pleasure. Um, I went to, you know, being a teacher, I thought, how can I organise this so it's a bit useful? And I was listening, I'm a great listener to Audible books, and uh, I came across this one by a young Australian woman, Chloe Hayden, who's just an extraordinary person. And she took her, all her lessons from Disney fairy tales and uh, she gave three ways of any story. And there is the, um, now I've got to remember them. Uh, <laughs> there's the beginning, which I've forgotten. Um, there's uh, the adventure, and there's a happily ever after. You know, the once upon a time. So once upon a time in rural Scotland, in a wee place called Kirkubri, it's spelt Kirkcudbright because it's the church or kirk of St. Cuthbert. Right. But for some reason, I've never understood. Everyone there pronounces it like an Australian country town, yeah. Kirkubri. And uh, I was born to... Uh, they weren't... Uh, they, I call them upper working class because my mother worked as well as my father. My father drove a truck and uh, collected milk from farms. My mother did all sorts of jobs, but mainly cleaning. So I was very early trained in uh, emptying waste paper bins, you know, um, which is there as we cleaned this place called the office. <laughs> I mean, there were other offices, but that was the office. Um, I recently went back there uh, for a reunion with school friends for whom I hadn't seen for 50 years. So it was really, I should add, I'm an old fucker, so in case, <laughs> in case you hadn't gathered that. And... Um, <laughs> It was really interesting to see, you know, a number were dead. Um, 
two or three of my girlfriends or wannabe girlfriends had uh, <laughs> all, all, well, you know, I wanted them to be girlfriends. <laughs> they didn't want, and uh, you know, they had uh, MS and Parkinson's. And, right. and it was really so. I felt very blessed, um, and I've been trying to work out, and still trying to work out what that did to me. I had a very loving mother who had a very tough background. And I was really a mother's boy with that. My father I loved, but it took us a long time before we could talk because he'd been in the war and come back with PDSM. And uh, he was a functioning alcoholic, basically. And to him, I owe my sense of humor. Because when he came in drunk, if we could make him laugh, we could have a good time. Right. If he couldn't, someone get hit. Wow. Okay. So um, bless you, Dad, for my sense of humor. <laughs> it often comes as very inappropriate. And that's why it's good talking to you, because you know how inappropriate I am. <laughs> so that was there. And I felt like I was an alien. I thought, if rural Scotland was reality, I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> you know, I couldn't. I couldn't hack it. That was not, that was not my planet. Yeah. Um, although I, I grew up, was very blessed and had good friends and yeah. um, a reasonable school. And uh, I owe my academic career to my French teacher. Right. She said, "McKee, you'll never go to university." So I thought, oh, "Well, fuck you." <laughs> and uh, that's how I ended up. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens to people. Eh? Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've talked about this with other people before about how. You know, and particularly, I think in this day and age, where we're so protective and not wanting to say the wrong things and not offend people, that actually, you know, I, I worry about that a little bit. Not that I like to go around offending people, but sometimes, and I've I've got a story like that myself, where someone saying something I didn't like forced me to prove, I think, not just not to them, but to myself, that they were they were wrong. Yeah. And it, and if we get too, I don't know, too PC, then that might start to disappear. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Um, I don't sort of want to give needless offence, uh, but I swear, and people where I come from swear, so, you know, I use it. And I've often been reported for swearing, um, but I've often been thanked because to other people it means that their way of speaking mm. is, is yeah. accepted. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I do try and teach very positively, but I think sometimes... Um, you need to be direct. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's part of mm. your kind of persona that I've appreciated. <laughs> and I, I certainly remember, I think I remember the first uh, session that you, you taught me and, you know, the, uh, the, you know with the, the swearing, uh, it's just unexpected, mm. but a pleasant surprise. Mm. And how it kind of immediately relaxes everybody. Uh, yeah, so it's it's not, I don't, I don't think people take it, well, well, you got to watch. I mean, as once this absolutely charming um, Maori Christian lady who asked me if I would please moderate my language, right. and I said, "Well, I had already avoided blasphemy, um, <laughs> and I would do my best." And it became a great self-awareness exercise. Oh, flip! And <laughs> uh, trying to, you know, run the thing. So it, it yeah, was awareness, yeah. and the class enjoyed it, and yeah. she appreciated it, yeah. and and yeah. you do it. Yeah. But I've had people at university told me to stop. And yeah. I said, if you don't want me to teach. Well, that's part of who you are, right? It's the authentic That's you. right. It's, and yeah. like you said, where, where you grew up, it's, 
it's normal. It's part of mm. the language, yeah. everyday language. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 sorry, I, I dis disrupted there and went off on a little bit of a tangent, but I want to take you back to what you were talking about. When there was a comment that you mentioned there about uh, you, you're not from this planet yeah. and you wanted to get out of there. What was it that made you feel that and at what point in your life was that? I think it was very early. Um, uh, I was an only child and, uh, you know, I looked around me and I didn't fit in, you know, and I didn't. And uh, my dad at that point had, you know, was still, I was born in 1947. So he was pretty rough from the war. He'd had a horrendous war. Um, he was... He wanted to be in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. He was just married. He wanted to stay safe. And he put the engine for the truck he drove into the landing craft. So he went through all the D-Day landings and also the landings in Italy. And I could never, as a young boy, I was very gung-ho. I wanted to um, hear all about it, you know, Battler Britain, all this stuff. We used to play, you know, Japs and British, Germans and British, all that. And he only ever talked about it once. I saw an American film, we were watching an American film called The Longest Day, and the landing craft was in part of that. He said, oh, these Americans are so brave. And he said, that's nothing. Think about the poor buggers who went in and out. So they went into the jaws of death, went out, and then came back in for the whole of the D-Day landings and also the landings mm -hmm. in Italy. And that gave me, and it, that's the only time he ever really talked about it, apart from some funny stories with mates. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think he punched above his weight in how he loved me, given the cards he'd been held. Right, okay. So was that, how was that for you growing up? I mean, I've heard of this before and, and like I'm, I'm sort of looking at it today where people are encouraged to talk about things like that. And I, and I having seen some trauma, nothing like that at all, but in yeah. the jobs that I've done in the past, um, I can understand not wanting to come on and talking about it, to be honest with you. Um, but back then, they literally just did not talk about it. Yeah. But was that, how was that for you? As a child, was that well, frustrating? You, you think, you know, um, you think that it's abnormal. When I went back to the 50 years, the number of stories of alcoholic parents, mm. you know, mm. and working class, it was more accepted because they drank in the pub. The middle class kids, their parents drank at home and no one outside the family knew. Mm. And we didn't really know what an alcoholic was mm. in those days. I mean, we, we knew, you know, there's lots of jokes, oh, he's an, an alky, you know. Mm. But we didn't know, so we couldn't quite decipher it. We knew something wasn't right. Mm. But as you perceptively point out, no one talked about it, mm. you know. Mm. There weren't interventions, no. you know. Someone might clock someone, but that was about all. Yeah. 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 So... You, obviously, you talked about the, the love of your father, and you talked about his, yeah. his humour. How else did your father or your parents, both your parents, influence and shape you? What you know, what what else did you get from them? Do you think uh, they made me think I wouldn't live long? 
my father started, my mother started having heart attacks when I was 13. My father when had strokes when I was 15. Wow. And they kept having heart attacks and strokes. And my uncles and aunts all died. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so I, I never expected to have a long life. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought I would reach the age I am today. Yeah. Uh, let alone be functioning at this yeah. age. So I think it probably internalized something about health, although it took me a long time to start to live healthily. So did that, did, you know, something like that shape your thinking that I must, I must live a, a full life while I can? Or did it make you, you know, more nervous about what, what life was going to deal It's interesting. You? I didn't really think about it. This was unconscious. Do you know what I mean? And then I started when I was uh, waiting. My mother died at 53 and my father died at 63. And around my 63rd birthday, I got almost superstitious, mm-hmm. you know. And by that time, I already had a heart attack yeah. and had a stent inject. So it wasn't like, you know, I didn't know. Yeah. But, you know, I've reached my ripe old age um, of 76 and uh, I'm in pretty good nick. Yeah. You know, yeah. it hurts when I go out of bed in the morning, but who knows? Yeah, it does for me too. <laughs> <laughs> Look, young fella. It's funny though. It's, well, it's not funny, but it's, it's you know you mentioned that there about that kind of uh, suspicious or superstition type thing. Like my father was the same. His his father had a heart attack at fifty seven. Mm. He died at sixty four of cancer, and then my dad had a heart attack at fifty seven. And he thought he was going to die at 64. Yeah. He thought that there was a pattern. So he celebrated getting to his 65th birthday. And, yeah. and he actually celebrates every birthday since, since yeah. because he's the oldest living Worsley. So I'm hoping he lives a hell of a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll try and yeah. surprise him. It's true, yes. I mean, I found that. I didn't, um, I didn't really think, but I was with my dad when he had his almost final heart attack. He, he, he thought he had indigestion. You know, it immense physical courage mm. and, and bravery. Mm. Um, and because my mother died young, he couldn't, you know, he managed to cope and, and it was difficult. But, um, you know, I think one of the things I'd like to do is teach a wee bit with this mm. <laughs> and uh, recommend a book. There's a wonderful book that there'll be, a, and if you go to the website, you'll find a photograph. It's called The Changing Mind, A Neuroscientist's Guide to Aging Well. It's by a wonderful guy called Daniel Levitin. And he's an extraordinary guy. He's uh, one of the leading neuroscientists. He was also, uh, he made rock music, became a producer, and manages people like Stevie Wonder and Joni Mitchell. And he wrote this book, and it's filled with science in an accessible way. And he talks about it in his own family. And he sees three things. And this might be interesting for you to explore with uh, people on this show. He talks about three things. There's uh, genetics, culture, and opportunity. These are the three things. And he says, genetics, lay down the base, but you make up a lot of the script. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I never thought I would live this long. You know, There's all yeah, sorts yeah. of things yeah, yeah. there. And... Um, the second one's culture. I'm very Scottish, but I haven't lived in Scotland for a long time. Mm. 
I've no desire to go back. I go back to see my family and enjoy it, but, you know, I wanted to be away. Um, and the, the third thing is opportunity. And often the opportunity comes through a crisis. And you can decide, as you decided, you know, to say, I also have a resurrection day that celebrates the heart attack I had. Mm. You know, my friends laugh at this, but it was, it was a friend of mine that suggested it. I thought, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and I went to see the heart surgeon afterwards, no, the cardiologist. And I said, you know, what caused it? Because I'd taken care of myself. And he says, no, you're doing everything right. So I said, effectively, you don't know why it happened and you can't tell me how to avoid another one. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment where yeah. I really consciously decided. I had one other one when I, I was in a car crash and almost killed in my early 30s. And I realized I hadn't been living fully. And I made the decision from then on to I was going to find out who I was. I still don't know. but um, You're on that journey. I'm on that journey. Yeah. You know. Well, I suppose today, really, for, for, for me, certainly, anyway, is trying to uh, learn from that journey or, yeah. you know, for you to tell about that journey and what you've learned along the way. I, I think it's important that you, what you've just said is how we should view life, really, that it's, we're never there. It's always a journey. I like to think of it, and I refer to it on here, as uh, we're creating a story that's hopefully, you know, a life that's hopefully a story worth retelling. Yeah. You know, um, and, and what are the what are the chapters of of our own kind of personal book? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm I'm going for at least a three decker novel <laughs> 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 to hell with a chapter. Um, but yeah, and I think stories is the other way to run through. As this woman works with Disney stories, so there's Once Upon a Time, and in Scotland, then after the Once Upon a Time, you needed adventure, mm. and I wanted to see the world, you know, and find out if there might be a place on the planet. So I joined the Ministry of Defence as a civil servant. And just as it, before I got accepted, they closed all the overseas postings. But I ended up in London as a civil servant with a heather growing out my ear holes and hit the swinging 60s. The swinging 60s didn't hit Scotland to about the 1980s, <laughs> if it ever came. So it was really uh, extraordinary. To, to do it, to be alive in London at that time, mm. in that whole scene. Yeah. And because I was in working in Whitehall, I was near the BBC studios. You could go for free and listen to lunchtime concerts as long as you clapped. Right. So I saw Jimi Hendrix, the first time Cream were right. on. And I saw all the top stars coming yeah. to plug their records. And from a boy from rural Scotland, it was heaven. Yeah, yeah. And, but was that your place on the planet, or? Uh, no, um, I won't do a detour into my love life, but um, All right. it was. Uh, I've always been more about people than places, you know, and and people and places can be embedded. But I was always a gypsy. I'd never meant to stay in New Zealand. I've been here twenty four, twenty five years now. How how old? How long? 24, 25. Oh, yeah, 20, yeah. Not, okay. Can you not tell by my accent? Yeah, it's, it's, it's worn <laughs> off. Yeah. So about the same time that I've been here then. Yeah. Yeah, so what, 98? About 98? Uh, yeah, 97, I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 So I'm interested in, in talking about your 
your career and where it yeah. started from. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of counselling around this and coaching. And the question I always ask is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. You know, and now it's interesting because we come back to bite me because now I've retired, you know, in the sense I'm, uh, I've got a lot of options. Mm. So it's coming back. Mm. And for me, and this is one thing, it may be peculiar to me, but I can only function if I've got something I'm really enthusiastic about. It doesn't matter if anyone else says, I've got to be enthusiastic about it. You know, if I don't get that, I'll spiral down. And I also feel, and this is personal, it sounds egotistical, but it's not meant that way. I feel I'm kind of guided. You know, it's like the people who come into my life come in at the right time. Like you and I came and, you know, I've just had a birthday. You asked me to do this. We fucked around for a while. And then, <laughs> you know, I wrote and you said, can you do this date? And we were off, mm. you know, and I trust that that's yeah. there yeah. and that, that things follow from that way. But it's not a, a blind trust. You still have to do things and do stuff. And the biggest is opportunity. Never ignore what's right in front of your face, even if it's the last thing you think you want to do. Mm. So it's, it's what you make of a crisis. You can turn that into an opportunity. That's that's a real interesting and a key point, isn't it? Mm. If it, whatever's right in front of your face, even if it's the last thing you want to do, yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that? Have you had experiences of that, that you could share? Many times, because I'm trying to give career counselling, and I say, well, I took the crazy path, <laughs> you know, because uh, I ended up uh, in a management school. The, the the funniest was I was a, a lecturer in media studies in Australia. And I was headhunted and interviewed to be a professor in management at the University of Waikato. Yeah. I don't quite know what they saw, why they did it, because it didn't make sense logically. But it was a great ego boost, and I went along. And uh, I've not a single qualification in business. I mean, I still ended up a very well-published thing. But I know, so I learned a lot from beginner's mind that way. That's, I think... The teaching skills that came from really listening, learning from people like yourself, you know, to actually go. And I think in my classes, I try to get everyone free to speak. And the ones who don't speak often have often amazing insights. And, you know, you learn so much mm -hmm. that, that would come through. Yeah. I'm sort of lost my train of thought. So, no, what we're talking about was like what was right in front of your face, uh, yeah. examples of that. And it, the, I, was here, I was teaching lecture, and someone came and said, will you come for an interview as a professor? Of, oh. So I, I thought management were the bad guys, you know. <laughs> you know, I put on a suit to go for the interview, and all my friends said, you've sold out. You know, <laughs> it was true. And uh, that was just there. So I decided to jump, you know. Australians tend to think people who leave Australia to go to New Zealand are mentally deficient. You know, they've got an incredible arrogance around it. Yeah. But uh, I came here interviewed, and I didn't get the job because the other guy was much better than I was, <laughs> had taught management, was, you know, published in management. But I thought, oh, this is a place I could grow. This is, I want to be here. So I... Uh, worked on for a couple of years and eventually come over as a senior lecturer rather than a, a professor. So so what were you doing uh, before you you were talking about jumping to that obviously that that didn't pan out uh, um, 
at first, but what were you doing in Australia prior to that? Well, I've never had a job. I'm very well qualified. You know, I'm a world authority in early 19th century Scottish fiction. That's what your PhD is in, right? That's, you know, you should see the MBA when they ask what my PhD is. They say, Scottish fiction, Scottish society, 1800 to 1832. <laughs> yeah. A deathly silence. But um, it was that was one of the moments when the job was offered. And uh, then I, um, I went to Libya to teach English as a second language, which came very easily to me. But... Um, I was about to fight a custody struggle and I needed a job and I needed some money to get out of debt. Mm. So I went to Libya and I had no language teaching skills and I was shit at it, <laughs> you know, but um, it was an amazing experience, you know, to be in a country that was um, more sexually uptight, more politically reactionary and more culturally backward than Scotland. <laughs> so I think when you go to different places, you get a better perspective mm. of what it is to be where yeah. you came from. Yeah. Um, then I went to, where did I go there? Then I came back and took teacher training because I was still, I was then fighting a custody struggle. I needed to be a member of society and yet get legal aid. Mm. And unfortunately, I lived with my daughter as a single parent family in Libya. Unfortunately, I lost the struggle. And um, then I got a job setting up the first communication studies degree in Scotland. And uh, I had no idea about communication studies, so I'd, it became my passion to learn about that. Can I, and you, we don't have to go there if you don't want, but just that struggle that you lost with your mm. daughter, what impact did that have on your life in the direction of it? It probably allowed me to be more free. If you've operated as a one-parent family, let alone a one-parent family in Libya, you know, your, your life is totally your child. You know, mm. the rest, you, when you're not with them, you're working out ways to cover, you know, to get babysitting and all mm. sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, I fought very hard. And uh, I think I still have a good relationship with my daughter, but I felt she carried the damage from my failure. And uh, I deeply regretted that. But... It allowed me to be freer in a sense that I could move and do things. So I stayed in Britain for a while to see her and then um, I shifted to Australia and tried to bring her out with me, but for various reasons. She stayed with me for a while, but for various reasons she went back. And uh, she was planning to come to New Zealand, but then COVID struck and yeah. immigration. And the immigration authorities in, in New Zealand are awful. Um, so uh, I think it influenced me very much and uh, I regret that I wasn't there, especially when we'd been so close mm. there. Mm. Um, but uh, I tried to give her everything I could and she's amazing. She's just an extraordinary young woman mm. and has brought up two extraordinary daughters. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I haven't seen for too long, so I'm mm. hoping to get back to Scotland this year. And see yeah. Her. yeah. So is, is she living in Scotland? Are they yes. living in Scotland? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
Yeah, so I mean, these things can um, derail us, right? These, you know, the moments well, in our lives that can, if, if you allow them to. But I think, you know, I, I challenge that for myself because derail, you need to know where you're going. I've never known where the fuck it's going. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. when I look back, one of the biggest influences of me was I found a couple of uh, masters in India. So I um, studied meditation and did uh, kind of Zen therapy. And right. And that probably served me better than any qualification I had. So wow. that's why I say it's a crazy path. Yeah. And, and you, you, like you are asking people, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. Did you have any idea when you were younger what you wanted to do? Obviously, you've talked about wanting to leave Scotland, and that was a well, fairly early realisation for you. But yeah. did you have well, any ideas about what you wanted to do? First of all, I wanted to drive a truck like my dad. Right. I don't shit drive it. It's a good job I didn't get there. Um, then at school, I thought I'd like to be a librarian. Yeah. You know, again, I don't think it would have been a career choice. Yeah. Um, and then I left London to join the civil service, mainly to travel. Yeah. I was bored shitless. And um, then I trained to become a computer programmer systems analyst in the 1970s. And I left it because there was no future. <laughs> and I was right, because the future was 10, 20 years away yeah. when I would be too old. Yeah. You know, okay. in those days, it was very primitive. Mm. And uh, then I went to set up the first communication degree. I, well, I did um, a teacher training because I was still doing the custody struggle. Mm. And... Uh, then I set up the first communication studies degree in Scotland, and that was that was all consuming. You know, I worked seven days a week, and um, I lived hard and partied hard as well. So <laughs> it was uh, it was a very interesting time in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then from from there to uh, from there to um, West Australia. You know, I ended up getting a job there. I knew I'd, I'd got tired and I wanted out. Yeah. And, uh, yes, so then that's why I say it's a crazy path. Yeah. And it's like Ian was very kindly asking me about my Facebook thing. I don't really do promotion. I have got, you know, an email and mm. things, but um, my clients come to me. Yeah. You know, I apologise for the. I'll talk to the action learning book later. Um, and uh, I'm just very blessed that way. Yeah. So I do a gratitude meditation every day, yeah. Yeah. which uh, is probably the, the last of my meditation routines. Yeah. So I, I forget who said it, but I, I, I pinched it. I actually thought I came up with it, and I found the quote the other day, and I forget which who, who said it. It's a, it's a very old saying about... Um, Luck is um, opportunity meeting, or preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. And you've talked about opportunity. I think it's reverse opportunity suddenly makes you prepare. Right. You know, I got into leadership by accident. Yeah. One of the best leaders I've ever known, a guy called Mike Pratt, who was the uh, founding dean of the management school. And he said, will you teach a leadership course with me, David? I don't know anything about it, Mike, you know. We'll try to get out of it because you really need to look when opportunity looks you in the face. Yeah. And um, he said, it's okay, I'll teach you. I said, okay. So you need to do some work. That's fine. I like work. 
So he got me to write the course. Yeah. And he had a look. He says, this looks really good. Yeah, this is, this is good stuff. And then uh, about a week before I was due to teach it, he says, oh, David, sorry, I've got to go overseas. But the course is good. You'll be fine. <laughs> and that's how I got into leadership. You know, yeah, yeah. So the preparation came after I said yes to the opportunity. That's interesting, yeah. And uh, the same with management. You know, I worked like hell and became an A-ranked researcher. But uh, you know, it started from beginner's mind, really, mm. and a willingness. So, you know, look at what falls in front of you yeah, yeah. and take it. Yeah. And so you spent a, a long time at the university. I did. Every time I tried to leave, something happened. I fell in love with this wonderful Israeli woman in Washington, and I got study leave to, uh, well, I got unpaid leave to go and teach, getting a visiting professorship in, near Boston, right. so as I could go with her. And then we danced across continents for two or three years, and eventually she got a job in my then department. Right. And uh, we've been together ever since. Yeah. Um, I must stop saying M. I've just realised I'm in America. Ah, don't worry about it. And uh, that's why. I, and then we thought, well, we're not sure we want to die here, so let's get somewhere because um, my wife's got uh, a son, a daughter, and five grandkids in Israel. Right. So we wanted to get a place where we could go easier. I couldn't live in Israel just now. It's uh, it's. It's going to lose the Israel, the, all that's good in Israel, unless this government's removed very quickly. Yeah. Uh, they're abolishing law. It's tr there's 150,000 in the streets, and they're not paying any attention. Your wife's over there now, right? Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's a. Uh, I got this photograph from a drone of people thronging the streets, you know, and the government was threatening to turn water cannons on them. I thought, oh. Yeah, you know, but uh, I couldn't. I wouldn't stop her even if I could, and I couldn't. You know, she wants to hold on to the bits of Israel that she loves. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, where are you going to settle? <laughs> I mean, um, you've been here for twenty-four years, like you said, but you know, you're a gypsy at heart. Where, yeah, where well, will you, you know, I don't know. It, uh, it. Uh, it's a strange world, you know. As I say, I never meant to stay here. And I don't know, but some maybe if it's time to move, opportunity will come up in front yeah. of me, like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I was offered jobs in America. I was offered jobs in Australia, and I looked at them, and it, at the time it wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't as much fun. Yeah. So your your time at the university. Leadership, amongst other things, you told us that you wrote the course, or and and uh, the guy you were working with left left you with it. Yeah, um, I'm interested in your thoughts and how you came up with your approach to leadership. Mm. Uh, it certainly resonated with with me and, and I think yeah. everybody on on the program that I was on. But yeah. you know, you, you like you said before, before yourself, you you never was, uh, you know, you've never been in leadership or didn't know anything about leadership. So how did you go about developing a course back then that, that I believe is just as, if not more relevant now than what it was back then? Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting um, because 
it was trial and error. You know, I've never been a planner. You know, it drives my wife daft. She's, she likes to have things planned in advance, you know. Um, so I, I had to learn from my students because most of them knew more than I do, you know. So <laughs> that was good. And also I asked them originally to bring in their biggest challenge and the, the, the challenge that they would bring in to me. And that challenge, I learned from those challenges and we worked out how to handle them. Right. And then because the course was going so well, the same dean got me to run a, a program for the company formerly known as Telecom, the management development. Well, I changed it into a leadership and I lasted longer over 10 years teaching it than any of the HR who'd employed me. Right. But that meant I could take it in the real world. And another of my students got me to set up a company and got a, a, my first contract. And I wanted to see that it was relevant. So I used the consulting to check out what I was teaching. And I got quicker, stronger feedback. Yeah. If you fuck up in the classroom, students are very tolerant. <laughs> you know, if someone's paying you a lot of money to deliver yeah. and you don't get it, then you know about it very quickly. Yeah. And, and uh, the cash flow stops, as you know very, very well. Yeah. Um, so I think it was determined to integrate theory and practice, very much so. And then I realized I, 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 I kind of hit on it. I didn't plan it. And one of my students this year said, David, what you do is you get us to tell the stories that we need to tell to make space for the new story. And I was so touched by that because I think it's probably closest description to what I do, mm. you know. And that's why I deserve an A, which produces, well, you, you're, you're one of the all-time best of the poem. <laughs> but um, the, can I tell them what you said? Absolutely. Um, and th this guy read a poem and why I deserve an A. And it was a, it was a very funny poem. But the one that really caught me was he said um, that Peter Drucker was the leading management consultant in the world at the time. And uh, uh, Steve said, well, I learned a lot from Drucker and even more from that old Scottish fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it. It was just so uh, generous in its praise. And I think that's it, that I've captured the stories. I'm able to get people to tell the story that they maybe have never told. And uh, the creative people that like you do it in a creative way. Mm -hmm. There's often lots of tears in my class. Mm -hmm. There's stories around a guy saying, he's not going to make me cry, he's not going to make me cry. Mm -hmm. And I don't make anyone cry. But if someone's been sitting on a story for a long time mm -hmm. and they release it, and the energy is just phenomenal, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it's just, there was one... One guy gave, um, I don't think he mind, uh, Finn, we'll call it the Finn moment, because he revealed the story of such power. And uh, most of the guys in the room, including me, were crying. And this Chinese woman comes up and says, I, I, I never knew men could cry. Wow. 
And in that moment, you crack open something beyond the leadership course. Yeah. And I think, really, I've started teaching about life yeah. under the guise. Yeah. And I thought, I wish I had this. So I started a first-year leadership course. Yeah. And uh, about 60% of them were people who were the first in their families to go to university. Mm -hmm. So it attracts yeah. in that way. And it grew up with 225 from 25 when I started it, and another class of 80, you know, yeah. that were running yeah. when I, I, I left. And, and I really miss it because I think we don't give people enough power. I was speaking to some of my old students that they keep in touch with me and, and saying that you were the only first-year teacher that made us believe in ourselves. And I think that's such a, in the management school, sorry, I said. Yeah. And I think that's such an indictment. You know, I think we've got some better teachers in now, but there's still a lot of students who say, you can't, you need to get your degree before you can talk. And yeah. I think that's fucking criminal, to be honest. Yeah. How, how did, uh, so, uh, you use the word teaching. Yeah. I, and I, absolutely, you are, uh, you know, a great teacher, but you're so much more than that. Because you're a coach, you're probably a psych psychologist, you're a storyteller. Like you say, you encourage people to find their own answers and you're, you're open to learning from that. Where, where, does, where does all that come from? How, you know, how have you not just gone down the, dare I say, typical kind of, mm. and I'm probably doing damage to lots of other, you know, mm great people here, but, you know, typically you don't expect that, and that's why you resonate with people. That's why people write what they do about you. That's why um, people don't forget you. So why, why are you different? What's, what's contribute to that? Yeah, I think it's I'm a pragmatic lowland Scot, and whatever it takes, and I keep trying till I find things that work mm. and use them as long as they'll work. But it was... Um, I actually got a ceremony for becoming an emeritus professor. It's it's a long story, but did I tell you I needed to say I sung a song for that? Because no. the time it was the discussion started, I was um, I was watching Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, and I've always been a West Side Story fan. Right. So I decided because my um, French teacher said I would never go to university. Mm. So. I want to be an emeritus. People <laughs> like me don't become emeritus. That's why I want to be an emeritus. Sorry about the sound levels. Um, and I sang that, you know, and the vice chancellor, I think, was deeply embarrassed. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd had you there. I've got a video of it. Yeah. Uh, some like friend it. Did. And uh, what I did was, and, and I think this is a... I thought, I don't, I don't, I never actually went to any of my own graduations. I've got four, a first class honours, a PhD, a teacher training, uh, and stuff like that. But I'd never go to my own graduations. If my mother had been alive, I'd have done it for her, but she was dead. So, how do I handle this ceremonial warning? So, I read a book called The Art of Gathering, and I said, the purpose of this gathering is for me to thank the people who've taught me. If I'd had your email, I would have invited you. <laughs> and I had a lot of students and clients and things who, who'd been there. Mm. And I said, I want to 
you know, to thank you because in the, all your different ways, and I talked about the different ways yeah. people had, had taught me, and I meant it, yeah. you yeah. know. And that was, once I had that purpose for it, it wasn't about me, it wasn't about honouring me, it was paying back. Mm. It, it's giving in that, that yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think maybe to, what you're touching on there as well is that you've evolved over time with the interactions and engagement with, with oh, yes. people. But, you know, again, I don't like to sort of keep probing, but I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, please. <laughs> I, you know, but there's, there's something about your personality that's open to doing that in the first place. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I, I, I imagine, uh, and I, I'm going to at some point relate this back to leadership. In general, but there's there's a there's a status that comes with being being an academic lecturer or professor. Um, there's an expectation of of that role and that title. There's organisational structure, uh, and you've just alluded to the fact that maybe you embarrass people by, you know, stepping outside of of yeah. what's normally expected. Frequently. Yeah, yeah, frequently. Yeah. You know, so is that. You know, why, what makes you different? Uh, I think we're all different. I'm really interested in what called Nobody's Normal, and mm. it's true. And I think that we have to find our own quirkiness, you know, and it has to be our own. Mm. And then you can only be authentic in your own way. You can't be authentic in anyone else's. No one can dance quite as badly as I do. And I often dance before a class. And it will make things uh, people realise. And I got a, a disproportionate um, connection with Maori because I use music, mm. you know. And also being Scottish, being Scottish, they've been very kind to me. I have so many Maori friends who've just been magnificent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music side of things, and just the the difference that you you bring to those lectures, mm. I, I think. Um, Makes the learning environment so much yeah. more. But let's conducive. explore it. I think you're trying to get what lies behind it. I am really because you, and, I think all you're doing at the minute is paying compliments to everyone else. You're not really telling me about you and what drives yeah. you. What's what lies beneath? Yeah, it. and I think it's a good question. And you know, there's a bit of me slightly superstitious because you know I kind of hit on it and I don't want to. But students tell me what they think I do, and that helps. And I think that's it. I'm a key. I, I think. The job of leaders is to grow leaders. And you can only grow someone else if you... I, I mean, when I got my daughter, um, I was an only child. I had nothing to do with female children. So being an academic, I read all the books on it. <laughs> and the only line I ever found useful was, growing children need growing parents too. Yeah. And I think this um, growing leaders need to be growing leaders. The job of leaders is to grow leaders. Yeah. That's the primary one. Yeah. You know, that you, you want to say, and you can only grow them if they grow themselves. Mm. So if really it's about growing people. And I do that because I care. And mm. I really, I'm grateful for the opportunity. It's a sacred space. And while I swear and clown, I do whatever it takes to, you know, <laughs> what, what undergraduate teacher says. If David McKee took his, felt he had to take his clothes off and dance naked in front of us to me, he would do it. <laughs> and I would. You know, I threatened him with I'm it. I'm kind of glad that we didn't get there in my uh, <laughs> on the programme that I was on. But 
Yeah. But you know what? What? So maybe if I can ask a question around, you know, what do you get from that? You're talking about growing, growing mm. leaders, and and in order to grow leaders, you've got to keep growing yourself. And yeah. I think it's probably fair to say that you are continuously growing your journey. You're always learning. You're always looking at what next. You've described a little bit of that. But caring and growing others, you know, what what drives that? Motivates that? What do you get from that? Okay, let me tell you one. There was one moment that was. Uh, very clear. I was staying with uh, friends of mine in the south of France. She was Dutch. She'd been in that big uh, banking company. And he was Belgian, an enormously creative guy. And uh, But she'd also studied with Deepak Chopra and taken some crazy paths. So he said to me, David, what's your philosophy? And I said, I try to give more than I get. And she looked me in the eye and said, and you've never succeeded, have you? I just rock back, you know, because I'm trying to give. I get more back. So I keep trying to give. I get more back. Yeah. I keep trying to give. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, you asked me to come this podcast. Oh, Steve's, Steve's a good guy. He's a mate. I'll, I'll do that. And I've got so much from it. Mm. You know, I've got much more than I've, I've given. Mm. And I think, you know, I think that's what happens. You do your best to give with as much care. And there was a quote I used in uh, Narratives. It's about um, an old professor who said that, you know, what he regretted was the times when he had people who were really in front of them, authentically there, with their emotions raw, and he just gave them the standard answer. He didn't respond. I think I respond to almost every human being that's open in front of me. You know, I try to open my heart if they open theirs. And I have lots of sort of um, mentoring conversations and I get more from it than, you know, if I listen to my own advice because <laughs> I'm good at giving advice to others yeah, yeah. and turning it on yourself. Yeah. So it's that um, when someone's really there, you know, when you said you were nervous about this one, you know, I thought, what the fuck's he got to be nervous about? <laughs> you know? and, uh, but that nerves are part of it. You know, unless you've got nerves, you're not emotionally invested. That's right. I still shit myself before classes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like I still go to, you know, I went to um, a senior management retreat for, you know, just an hour and a half to mm. kind of do a bit of transformation, you know. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, shit. But the guys were great. Yeah. It was one of the best I've ever done. And I didn't know what I was going to say until it came up. Yeah. But you need to find, maybe you're pushing me through so it's helpful. Uh, maybe you need to find people's real stories. What's the story that they need to tell, not the story that they want? As you're pushing me, what's the story that I need to tell rather than the stories I want to tell? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything else in there that you need to tell? I was just thinking, as I said, it. oh, shit, I opened myself up with that one. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it's right. This is quite a curious time for me. Um, you were generously wanting to promote the action learning thing. And there's three or four potential, you know, I often talk with people and uh, we have a good conversation. It's like you and I at one point were thinking of working together. You know, you have the conversation and it works or it doesn't. And I've got three or four of these conversations and I'm not quite sure where they're going to go. Yeah. Um, 
but each one transforming. What's my passion now is learning more about um, neurodiversity. I've been so ignorant of this, and it's taught me so much already. And I'm really uh, exploring um, exploring that because I think it's uh, one of the last frontiers of inclusion. And if we can make workplaces... So uh, one project would be to set up a, a company to um, prepare neurodiverse people to get good interviews and get work and to prepare organisations mm. for... Um, managing with neurodiverse people yeah so can you just for those who might be listening mm. who don't know what neurodiverse means uh, neurodiverse is, is a is a loose term um that is to cover people who who kind of think and behave differently it's someone in the autism adhd dyslexia um, dyspraxia there's a whole set of things where People's brain think differently, and the education system's useless for them. You know, it's like trying to judge a, a fish for climbing a tree, mm. the way that they they, they think. And uh, I think if we can change our teaching and organisations to make people like that comfortable, everyone will be better. Mm. You know, because at the moment there's a a massive wave of mediocrity. You know. People are frightened and they're not, people are not speaking. Organizations are dying because they haven't got the energy of the people inside them. And we need to think differently. And neurodiverse people think differently. Mm. The, the New Zealand police actually put out an advert for three people on the spectrum because they're the ones who can identify financial patterns and financial crime. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just got one of the biggest questions that I, I've ever realized. I don't know if it's big in the literature. It was from a neurodiverse, actually an autistic woman. And she says, do you think in patterns or do you think in pictures? And I think that my hunch is that um, autistic people think in patterns and dyslexics think in pictures. It's a variant. Right, okay. You know, yeah. and... Uh, so they think differently and they, um, we need people who think differently. That's why you've moved. You never planned this as a career. You never planned this kind of thing happening. Am I right? No, yeah, you did right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No. Yeah. But um, in doing it, you've learned so much. You get a lot of people who are comfortable being around you. So you create the environment. When you say teacher, that was one of your earlier questions. I think I'm much more of a facilitator or a, a space creator. Mm. You know, I create the conditions for people to flourish, mm. you know, yeah. and I pull it from my own guts. Mm. That's, I've only got these guts, mm. you know, and my stories. Yeah. And that's what I do. I had a consultant down from Auckland, so, you know, they say, why the fuck are you so successful? Because I didn't, I don't, didn't have a website or any mm. stuff like that. Yeah. I said, well, I pull it from my own guts. Mm. It's my own heart and soul and balls that are in there. Mm. You know, yeah. so, um, and I think people recognize that. And when it, that happens, you can get a resonance mm. that, that's through. Yeah. It's, it's the word facilitator I, I was going to raise, and, and I will 
shortly. I'll come back to it if I can, because it's going to sound like we've scripted this. But sorry, you raising that uh, is going to bang on what I wanted to talk about in relation to leadership. But if I can, I'll come back to that. Because I, I want to just touch on you saying that you're ignorant about neurodiversity. Mm. And I'm just interested, what changed? Where did you... How do you be, become no longer ignorant and what switched you on to that? And I've started to reduce the ignorance. I had a, a, I had a Phil, I won't mention his surname, but from um, Taronga, actually. I was supervising him on a, an MBA thesis and uh, I suddenly realised, you know, and he's typical of being a disproportionate number of dyslexic entrepreneurs, mm. you know, and there are certain areas where they really thrive. And I realized that I was doing all my usual stuff to help him, and I was a bit, but I didn't know how to. You know, at one point, I thought I was helping, and he said, I would rather fight in fucking Serbia than go back and fight in Serbia than, than do that. And I thought, my God, I don't know what to do. So I took uh, courses. There's a good guy called Mike Stiles, and he got money from corrections to go into prisons because he reckoned many prisoners were in there because they were just frustrated because they couldn't read. Because they couldn't read, they couldn't do stuff. So uh, I took courses and I read books and um, and to get that the, his thesis, I expanded it into neurodiversity. I started to read and uh, it was just uh, awe-inspiring. You know, I, I really, that has fueled the passion right. to know. Yeah. So two, two things about that. One is that you, in essence, stumbled across that because yeah. of circumstance. I'm which, guided. And, yes, yeah, exactly. And, and then you're, you being open to learning about, not just open, but actually probably passionate about learning. Yeah. You, you spot a gap in your knowledge and think, actually, I've got something to learn there and, yeah. and go off and do it. But the other thing is that just you being able to identify that as a, an issue in front yeah, of you. It's a, it's a gap with impact, you know, and it's people want to help. This uh, Australian woman, Chloe Hayden, said that, you know, her song is uh, God, uh, God Help the Outcasts. <laughs> and, and it's true. I've always felt like an outcast. When I get to university, can you imagine sitting down to be there? <laughs> One lecture said, the key not so much a chip in the shoulder as a shoulder on the chip. <laughs> you know, and he was right. You know, I was punching before anyone hit me yeah, because yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was tremendously uncontrolled aggression. Mm. And um, I've always kind of hung out and attracted outsiders. Mm. You know, and that, that's who I am. Mm. The other big thing to go back to the start of, uh, I thought this I tried to avoid this happening, but what is free wheel? Um, the other thing that helped me was um, my mother named me David and forced me to go to Sunday school. And I got the story of David and Goliath. Right. You know, yeah. and shit, did I identify with that? Because it was a little Roy yeah. for a while. And, um, you know, I think that I have a desire to overthrow powerful people when they abuse that power. And I really, you know, I've used whistleblowing legislation and things. Mm -hmm. And uh, God bless the whistleblowers. 
um, to, to, to make change. And the fact that it's huge doesn't matter, mm. you know, if, if it's something. It's like, mm. who am I to come on at this age and stage to try and contribute to neurodiverse? But mm. fuck it, it's yeah. worth doing. Absolutely. I'll do uh, it. Yeah, absolutely. So can I pick up on, uh, you probably regret saying this now because I've got another question that's come to mind. The, like the overthrowing power or, you know, what, I can't remember exactly the term you used there about that, um, you know, the David and Goliath kind of thing. Is there something that's happened in your life that's led to you, either consciously or subconsciously, feeling the need to do that? What what's what drives that? I always had that. You know, if someone was being bullied, I'd occasionally get beat up myself. You know, I couldn't stand back. You know, it was uh, it was. I think you know, in naming me David. You know, I think that that was part almost of my genetic makeup. So I was always siding with. Um, so do you think it was that story? You listening to that story I and don't, associating I don't yourself know. with I it? I mean, but you know, it's a yeah. story that still yeah. resonates. Although it's Malcolm Gladwell does an interesting take on it. Uh, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, I was. I think that that's that's part of it. Mm. It's, um, mm. Seeing to fight the good fight, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I sometimes write in my CV, you know, I try to combine um, a sense of justice with a sense of humor. You can get, can get, I can get seriously self righteous. It's a Scotty field Calvinist, and I'm trying to um, get, um, get away from that. Yeah, okay. If, if I can, I want to, well, I'm gonna anyway, I don't know why I say if I can, um, <laughs> I'm gonna ask anyway. I want to talk about leadership mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, a, a big part of this podcast show and a big part of what I'm about um, is uh, about leadership, workplace yeah. culture. Um, and, you know, my personal why is that, you know, I want everybody who goes to work to be happy, safe, happy, mm-hmm. safe and successful, whatever that means for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, we, we work in... In, this, in the business we work in this space um, you know, every year about surveys globally around you know 70 up to 70 percent of people are unhappy at work or disengaged mm. so if I can I want to talk about leadership and mm. what you've seen over the years that you've worked in that space and, and researching and studying and teaching about leadership has, has, has anything changed and if so what has changed, uh, and, and I'm talking about now not in the academic world, but well, maybe in the academic world. But yeah. you've mentioned obviously with your um, your consulting business yeah. that you're out there in in the real world too. So you're not just an academic; you're out there practicing as well. Um, well, I've got uh, my emeritus award. I had five people who moved out out to become CEOs. I think that academically. We've got, in some ways, we've got a bit smarter, but we're still trying to nail it down. Mm. And basically, like I did a lot of studies in bad and toxic leadership, because let's face it, you look around the world and, you know, there are more bad than good, I think. Mm. I I, I hesitate to say that because, you know, the academic in me wants some 
figures and sales. But there must be, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many people unhappy at work. I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer yeah. that actually whether things are great or things are bad, leadership's to blame. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think we need leaderful organisations. And if we start to get individual, I've never known a charismatic leader, a very good charismatic leader, be able to um, get a successor. Because deep in their soul, they don't believe anyone else can go there. Yeah. You know, so that's um, that's one of the, the, the crunches with it. And having s suffered under many bad leaders for a while, one of the things I've found out is basic thing for leadership is to be a good person. That's what I want above all else. Yeah. The rest you can learn on the job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it's humbling. All that research. And I think a lot of the research is good. And I think people see you've got an Adam Grant in your show. I think there are some very good academics who are now being able to write it in accessible, engaging prose. Mm. And that's, yeah, you, the um, governments are calling for um, research with impact. But academics are still writing for academics. Mm. So I stopped kind of doing the academics right. books, yeah, yeah. Yeah, other than what I needed to do. Yeah. And I'm looking to find new ways. And, and I think your podcasts are a very good way of, of working it out, mm. um, what to get there. So, yes, um, there's a futurist saying, things, get better, things are getting better and better, worse and worse, faster and faster. <laughs> and I think the good's accelerating, the bad's accelerating, yeah. Yeah. you know, mm. and we're in a lot of clashes. Yeah. And... Uh, at the moment, it's not looking too good. I see a recurrence of fundamentalism, religion, across the world. Mm. You know, Israel's close to becoming a theocratic state, like Iran. And uh, you look at the fundamentalists in America and the link with politics. Mm. I'd like to see religion out of politics. Mm. But I still think we've got to lead with spirit. And that means with energy, with the whole person. There's a translation of the Mayakovsky poem by an old teacher once, with a hail heart, with a whole heart, mm. you know, and I think that's how you need to teach and live and lead. And and leadership, I know you're fond of cynic, and leadership's kind of a way of being, mm. you know, and you need to be good, and you need to do good, yeah. you know, so you need to do it. And that's difficult, you know, working out how to be ethical and excellent mm. and put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. You, you said earlier about, you know, leaders need to be a good person mm. and the rest you can learn. I, I know that you're, um, you, you do a lot in the emotional intelligence mm. space uh, and I think that I actually just call you an emotional intelligence guru because you just exude it, right? But being a good person doesn't necessarily, or does it make you an emotionally intelligent person? And how important is that in leadership? Well, you know, one of the things that neurodiversity poses a challenge because they a lot have difficulty. Some are terrific, but a lot have difficulty with emotional. And the, the way what I've shifted now is to emotional agility. Right. It's able to get up and down in the right places and mm. um, that, that's that's through um, and 
I, a leader's not just brass in the shoulder mm. or on the heart. Mm. You know, it's not the general. We need leader for organizations where when something happens, the person who knows the most takes the lead. You know, in here you give away to younger, you know, mm. uh, people, wonderful young women who'll tell us what to do and they know far better than us. Mm. You know, and it's not just social media, mm. although that's certainly truth, but it's that willingness uh, to let the person who needs to lead, lead in the moment. Mm. And I think we get a bit obsessed around, you know, when I was studying bad and toxic leadership, I could tick off all the things. And then the one line that stuck with me, bad leaders exist because of a bad culture. The leaders always outnumber. Mm. If we gather together, yeah. if we have a leaderful <laughs> organization, then the bad leaders can't survive. And we've seen that happen in um, in Eastern Europe, briefly in the Arab Spring. Uh, so we need to look at ways of solidifying, finding new institutions. And we've got to find it quickly because the planet is at risk. I'm getting in constant arguments now where people say, oh, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party. You know, we've really got to shift out of the old thinking. We're caught in an age it's... And my grandchildren, and if they have to, they will suffer, you know. So that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, yeah. I, there's so much in there that I want to unpack and and, and pick at. But what, you, on your what you finished on there. So what? It's a huge challenge. What do we need? How do we change it? What kind of leadership do we need? Um. Well, the Gandhi's simple one is: be the change you want to see. You know, and try to give more than you get. Believe me, it's the best yeah. investment. Yeah. Um, and try and it, it can happen. You need to pick leadership moments. You need to pick the moments in the class where someone will. I remember once I was saying there was, um, we're talking about authentic leadership. And uh, I asked the class, I don't know if I did it when you were there, um, which moment were you most authentic? This Maori woman says, I'm most authentic when I looked in the eyes of the guy who killed my niece. Right. And that cut the bullshit. Yeah. You know, then we got real. Mm. You know, so you can, by being real in any moment, you can start to change. Mm. You change one at a time. Yeah. And, and thanks for this. I can do my propaganda if you like. You know, through this, because I don't like pushing myself in that way, but I love to share what I know from someone who's genuinely seeking. And also, I get so much from it because you've helped me see more things. You know, it's not blowing smoke up your arse. Yeah. It's really because you're asking the questions and forcing me to to go deeper. And um, I had a good and teacher to, to work out <laughs> to work out what I'm doing. You yeah. know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not clear what I'm doing but I think we have to we have to change we have to change rapidly and the bottom line is the planet we're at the point of no return near the point of no return do you do you think David what, what you see and it's a very kind of cat blanche throw it all out there stereotypical kind of comment or question but you said you know be the change that you want to yeah. see do you think that the leaders in the right positions and roles at a on an international stage, national stage, and even no. an organisational stage, do no. they? 
You know the the question I'm going to ask. Yeah. That no. Um, and that they exist because of bad cultures in every place. Yeah. You know, if we, you know, you see, I think we had a very good leader in New Zealand and Jacinda, and you see the scorn which a small group of, you know, combination anti-vaxxers and different kinds of alternative things have actually made it look as the most hated as well as the most loved prime minister, you know. And we've got our, our position that we need to tell our truth with it and, and take through. But I fear because there are people about my age and not that much younger who are blocking progress. Mm. And we really need to look and see what we can do to, to move it forward because yeah. the clock's ticking. So I'm really interested in that. And when you mentioned this before, I kind of laughed, but it was it was under under my breath a little bit because it just resonated so much with me. You know, this bad culture exists that allows bad leadership. And I'll be honest with you, I've always said, and I think I mentioned earlier, that I, you know, whatever the culture is, I think it's the, the leader's fault. But what you're saying really is, and, and it resonates with me because I've thought this for some time, but never publicly said it. And maybe that's because of a fear factor of, you know, what kind of business I'm in. If I say the wrong thing, but hey, like you say, fuck it. Um, for me, I, I've felt for a long time like it's almost um, like the, the workforce needs to dictate what culture it wants mm. or needs. Probably a better word, needs. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if so many of us are disengaged at work and we spend so long at work, so much of our time, and it impacts our lives so much, why aren't we saying no to the culture that exists? Why are we allowing it to exist? Yeah. If so, the, if the so leaders of the world it, won't wake up to say, why actually, am I? Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is why, why, you know, if the leaders aren't looking to be the change that's needed because they don't think there is any change, well, they need maybe telling that there is a time or need for change. Well, you, you can tell them, but it's to get people to actually change. As you know, it's very, very hard yeah. And, you know, you look at Greta Thunberg, I'm positive she's autistic. Look at her face, she's a typical autistic. And she's getting, you know, um, generational justice. And we need to take that seriously. Mm. And we need to look at the, the people who are, seem unreasonable. Mm. Because I've, I've, I've helped get leaders replaced. And there's a fucking assembly line of assholes that you get one out and there's another yeah. near clone comes in. Yeah. So until the people take their power, until I and you and all of us take our power and say, you know, we need decent, good, honest leaders. Mm. You know, this is not good, honest leadership. Yeah. In front of and it'll help them. Because yeah. the more autocracy a leader has, the worse the result. Mm. You look at even North and South Korea, even the, the relatively democratic South Korea, mm. has a much better chance of survival. Mm. You look at America under Trump, you know, and you look at Boris Johnson, the leaders who fail are not consulting, not running leaderful top teams, let alone leaderful organizations. They don't see it. Mm. And the leaders are often the people, the most important job in the management school used to be the front desk. You know, and, and we need it everywhere. And we need to listen to people who are touching customers. 
So we need a much more free flow and less insulated. You know, there was a lot of jokes made about management by walking about, but by walking about and seeing what's happening and watching and listening. And you, I think you're of an age and experience now that you can walk into an organisation, get a quick feel for the energy. Absolutely, yeah. You know, yep. and as a consultant, I walk in and I'm practically never employed to deal with the real problem. The problem that presents only the step in the door. You're dealing with the symptoms, really, right? rather than the cause. That's why you're brought in, really, to deal with symptoms rather than the real yeah. root cause of the problem. Yeah, and you say, oh, there's a dead elephant in the table. Oh, that, oh, <laughs> you know, and it allows people to, yeah. to, to do it. And as a consultant, I work to make myself redundant. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get in and, and uh, try to empower people and, and, and get this through. Yeah. As good consultants should, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, it's, as good leaders should. You'd be bored fucking shitless if you kept yeah, yeah, yeah. that stuff for long. But each yeah. a new challenge, a fresh yeah. way. So, I, so I'm going to come back to an earlier word that you used, and I said I would uh, about facilitate. Mm. I, it's a question I've got really that I'm playing with in my mind and toying mm. with at the minute around, and I'm doing a little bit of writing on mm. this stuff as well. So that's why I'm mm. playing around with it. But. Obviously, leadership has a place, but we've got so many leaders. And you've talked about leader-full organizations, so I'm, I'm keen to... Leader-full. Yeah. So, but do we need more leaders or do we need more facilitators of success? Well, I, and I, I, think, I think... the I see it less... I mean, maybe it's because I'm teaching. I think teaching is a sacred space, and I think leadership's a sacred space. And I think you need to honor the gods of leadership. And I think that means being a servant leader. Yeah. You know, really. Yeah. I think that's about the only kind of leadership you can mm. you can um, sustainably do. Because yeah. what you described earlier about working with someone on their thesis is maybe mm. dyslexic and, you know, I, I see that as uh, facilitating the success of that person. As a, as a leader, you can relate that to whether it's academics or whether it's workplace or whether it's just in general in life. Is recognizing something asking the right questions with curiosity to establish what are the what are the things that are getting in the way or what's stymieing progress what's holding that well, person? Well, two things are okay for start drop facilitation you're fostering transformation let's get it big all right there's yeah. no time for that yeah you know facilitations you know there's buildings facilities and all that yeah yeah, you know? yeah. And, and the spaces do matter you know, and you need leaders in there too. But um, that, that's uh, the, the first thing. And, um, and it's, it's a way of, sorry, I got lost there. What was the question again? So I was, we were talking there about um, whether it's facilitation yeah. of success and you said fostering. Yeah. I, I, know, I, I want to ask you what you said there because that was quite yeah. key. Fostering transformation. Yeah. You're, you're creating this space. You're creating a space for... Uh, for possibility. Yeah. You're creating possibility space. Yeah. And immediately people jerk up because the language is different. And if you want change, you need some change in the language. Mm. You know, life's work's a great title. Mm. It, it leans so many ways. It's so open, but you can occupy it. Yeah. 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 But your some question you were on, 
I think it's a leaderful organisation, so the person with the knowledge stands up at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's where I'm at. It's more of a, you know, I, I think traditional hierarchical organisations overly influence how we feel about our roles and our titles. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, we, we our behaviour conforms with what's subconsciously um, expected. And, and I see it more of a a constellation, if you like, where you might have the leader in the middle, but there's leaders at every junction and every point where there's crossing over. And like you said, mm. that you need to be able to empower the, the right people at the right times to, yeah, to do what's needed. Yeah. Because um, I do feel that a lot of leaders who've got leadership roles and titles are actually just managers of the status quo. At best. And actually, one person who I won't, I won't name, but in an organisation I used to work at, um, a union guy, um, managers of mediocrity. Mm. There's an epidemic of conformity. And one of the things, that's why diversity shakes, neurodiverse people shake it up. Mm. You know, I like, recently I got a new word, you know, oh, you're neuroordinary. <laughs> You right, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this wonderful woman in Britain, Kate Griggs, who, who set up a, a sperm bank for dyslexics in the high street, yeah. you know, to get people to think, yeah. you know, because so many successful dyslexics. Yeah. And that's not to minimise the difficulties, yeah. you know, so many people still experience. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's getting the, the thing. And I think we need to... The, the most successful... I was um, this uh, executive group, I was working with, it's one of the best I've ever worked with. And um, one of the things was, the best ones I worked with, the leader is in there doing their own shit as well. Mm. Mm. You know, yeah. so you're not a leader on any kind of pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you, you create a culture where, you know, everyone must feel free to speak and everyone must feel listened to. Yeah. That's the basic ground rules. Yeah. And then you build it up from there. And then the other leadership, people don't resist their own ideas. Mm. So get people together, you know, and get them to co-create strategy. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way to go. That's right. Sense of ownership. We're, we're working up in our office here. We've got a, a board that we, uh, we put different quotes on just to sort of, you know, keep it mixed up. The one that's on there at the minute, and it's been on a little while because we're talking about it of, how do we create this? So, you know, and I genuinely want to create this. Um, and, and it's words to the effect of, uh, you know, we're building a team uh, strong enough that we don't know who the boss is. I don't like the word boss, but it's someone else's quote, so we've yeah. used it. Um, because that's exactly what, ultimately, there's some accountability and responsibility. Oh, you've yeah. got to make decisions yeah. and you've got to, you know, you, you've got to take accountability for it. It's not fair to put that on, on some, some yeah. people. But otherwise... Anyone can say what they want. Yeah. Anyone can raise anything, question anything or anybody, as long as we're respectful doing it. Yeah. Um, and everyone's got their own role to play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's it. And you, it's your job to grow those leaders, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it, it's hard for someone like us because we're pretty articulate, you know. 
we need to shut the fuck up more often <laughs> and listen more. <laughs> yeah. You know, Absolutely. and also coax people, give their conversations yeah. with people. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. And then, so we'll talk about, if it's all right, David, um, and we could talk about leadership uh, for days. And maybe, if you're open to it, um, you'll come back and we'll, we'll talk some more on this, on this topic. But I'm conscious of uh, the time and how long we've, we've kept you. And I, I really want to get to the third kind of strand of life's work. So life's work's about life. And you've talked to us about that. You've been um, very generous with that uh, work. We've, we've we've obviously touched on, and the third one is legacy. Mm. And so, you know, as someone who um, is always growing, always learning, you're always dealing with what's in front of you, as you've described. Uh, not necessarily following some grand plan or have a destination in mind. Bearing all that in mind, you know, I'm interested in what you think your legacy is. Or what do you want it to be? You know, what's what's next? What's next for David McKean? Um, I don't know. I think we construct life in a legacy moment to moment. And one thing I'd really like to say: there's a lot of nonsense talked about thinking. You know, you can't think without language. You know, so what happens is we get in the particle accelerator inside our brain and the conversation restriction, restriction till it's two atoms smashing together. And we either go crazy or die of boredom. <laughs> so um, the next thing is to speak and to write. And the greatest way of thinking is conversation. Mm. You know, and I think that's why we've, we've got here. And so this is us thinking aloud in a, an empowered way, mm. without being trapped in the cranium. And it is moment to moment. When you offered this, I thought, that's interesting, because I had a plan um, to catalyze transformation on the planet, you know, to reach at least 10% with, you know, right. what I have to give. And I've kind of um, pulled off that one. Um, because I had, you know, a few health issues and things. Um, but I'm thinking maybe I need to find a way to go back there. And uh, I had a plan on a page, and 
I think I may need to go back. But at the moment, I feel that uh, if if I start to write the legacy before it has evolved in practice, it doesn't help me. You know, mm. I, I've tried it before, and um, it, it's a good classroom exercise. But for me, it's not work because my path's a crazy path. I really, really don't know what's next. Mm. You know, mm. and that's why. You know, I don't like putting things even in my diary. It drives my wife crazy. You know, she <laughs> wants to find out. I don't like, I feel that that time's taken away for her. That might be the magic moment. Yeah, yeah. Fear of missing out on something else, maybe. No, not plans. really. It's just um, fear of not seizing the moment. Yeah. You know, finding, you know, a moment. There's a few times where, I've had a moment and I've backed away with, from it without even realizing. I did a, a sorry, this doesn't come to me for a long time. I did a, a process called Satori, where you spend uh, a week in silence, apart from um, when you go into a room and for five minutes someone asks you, tell me who you are, and you have to speak for five minutes. And then he turned to the person and says, tell me who you are. And then he changed people. And you do this for, I think I did uh, three days. Right. You know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I realized, you know, someone said, you know, I got very high on it. And uh, if, you, if you can answer the question, you get another Zen question. Mm. You know, it's like you, do, you answer, who am I? What are you like if completely alone? And suddenly <laughs> the mind's pushed away. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like waiting for, you know, being, waiting without expectation. And I think the next thing, the way I work, which is why it may not be universal, is um, waiting without expectation till the next pathway emerges. Because as you can tell with McLean, none of it's planned. I happened to get stuck in this one for a while, mm. but it kept changing, mm. you know. And I'm in the same class for probably 20 years now. Mm. But it's not the same class every time it runs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's finding a place where you feel you can do the most good. And I think it will be the next stage will involve writing and also working in successful partnerships. You know, I think I'd quite like to try and make something that makes quite a lot of money uh, as as a way to spread ideas rather than, you know, I'm comfortable, you know, rather than actually, um, he says I'm comfortable, worried about paying a parking ticket. <laughs> um, you know, the old anxiety still hangs in there. Yeah. But um, it, it's that vague and I keep it that vague. You know, if you try and pin me down, I'll, I'll yeah. need more yeah. because I don't think it works for me that way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I legacy-wise, you've already got one, right? Um, there's people like me, thousands of them, who've, I'm going to use the word experienced, David McKee. Um, your teachings, your coaching, your advice, your willingness to listen, and like you've pointed out as well to to learn and grow yourself and and so 
you know, that's certainly a part of your legacy is that there are people all around the world um, who are all the better for having experienced being able to spend time with you. Um, and I consider myself very fortunate to have to have done that um, and to have benefited from... Um, Thank you, but wisdom. that's enough. I'll come back next no, week. No, no, I'm just... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying I think that, you know, that's part of it. And it's not necessarily something that you would say yeah. about yourself. Um, but, I, you know, I certainly would say that well, you know, you've made say, a difference. I mean, one of the things I'd like to do is I'm a, I'm a pragmatic lowland Scot. I like things that work. Sorry for banging the microphone. Here. Um, and... The students from my last class set up a Students of David Facebook page. Mm. And uh, I think I might push it not to push my legacy, but to connect you to each other and get intergenerational cohorts of MBAs because I think it makes good business sense. You've got a network there which we're only dipping the toe in. But I don't want to put it through the official university prison. And I I feel I can use myself in a non-egocentric way. To, to link because yeah. there are people like you who've done it and it's a privilege and when we meet again we, we can walk on holy ground mm. and take all the infrastructure for granted and just go you know you ask me what the biggest questions in my life right now and I'm searching and, and trying to mm. work it out as we talk mm. you know so I think that that's that's probably one of the things that's coming out. So we'll have the conversation and as you know, I keep asking, what's your greatest learning and what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And I ask myself more questions. You know, my greatest learning from this is that really I need to get over myself and use what I have to help more people. Yeah, yeah. Um, increase the reach. Yeah, and it, you, you've done it for me. You know, I didn't volunteer or anything you know you come in and show this opportunity in front of my face so <laughs> and i've got this big microphone in front of my face now and who knows where it will go from there yeah yeah well i'd just like to thank you again david for uh being who you are um being willing to give up your time and coming to talk to me today um i hope we can do it again i hope that we'll i know that we'll keep in touch anyway and uh, on a personal level and have these conversations. But I think if, if we can have more of these sessions, then the benefit is not just for me. It's yeah. it's for anyone who, who's and I get to listen. hugely from it too. You know, it's a, it's a win-win situation, you know. Yeah. So I'm trying to give something to help you and yeah. I've never succeeded. I've got more than, I, <laughs> more than I've given. Yeah, very good. All right, well, thank you again. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. I have to say, I was both excited and nervous to be interviewing my old emeritus professor, David McKee. I say old, he calls himself that. But he also provided me with a real education some considerable time ago. And though he's kind of retired, I suspect I'll never stop teaching. I have so much time and admiration for David because of who he is what he stands for, and how he demonstrates leadership through caring in all aspects of life, not just when he's teaching at university or consulting in organisations across the globe. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about 
the wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and summarize them here. The title of this episode is Give More Than You Receive. This is David's philosophy. And as he relayed to us in one of his many stories throughout this interview, when he told someone about that, they pointed out he'd probably never been successful at it. And they were right. No matter how hard he's tried to give, he's always received back, and then some. He very graciously stated that the interview process had provided with him with more value than he'd given by being a willing victim on this podcast. I'm not sure how true that is, but that says a lot about David's outlook on life. He always seems to find the value or the positive in something. But maybe that's because he is always looking for that. When we're operating on autopilot, we see what we expect to see. Even if that is an unconscious expectation based on our mindset, mood and previous experiences. If that's set to the negative, the reasons why we're always giving and not receiving, the world's against me type of attitude, then that will be reinforced by our own confirmation bias. We will see what we need to see in order to prove ourselves right. That's what our brain is programmed to do for us, which is also why it's difficult often to see other people's perspectives. However, if we take a second and look and ask ourselves, what can I take from this? Or what are you here to teach me? We might just find some gold, as David often does. You'll notice that what he's been receiving isn't necessarily obvious, tangible things. Instead, it's insight, life lessons, and knowledge, which he then considers how he can apply to his own life and situations and that of others. And that's wisdom. Turning knowledge, which sometimes you need to go and seek out, into action that creates a benefit in some way. There were so many gems that David provided in this interview. I cannot possibly go over them in detail here. So instead, I'm going to do something different, something I haven't done before, and that is try and piece some of those gems together to capture David's approach to and philosophy on leadership. So please bear with me. As David said, there are more bad leaders than good out there, and they exist because of bad cultures. Leaders are always outnumbered, and if we have what he calls leaderful organizations, the right people would step up at the right times, and bad leaders couldn't survive. Growing leaders takes growing leaders. In other words, we cannot stop learning and growing ourselves as leaders as we seek to grow future leaders around us. That includes learning from those we seek to grow as leaders. As you'll recall, David talked about his willingness and, in fact, need to learn from his students. It was a two-way thing. Where we have poor leadership, leaders who feel the need to have all the answers, well, that's not the kind of leadership we actually need. We must obtain the opinions of the team around us so that we can make the best possible decisions. And as David said, people don't resist their own ideas, so he suggested getting them involved in co-creating strategy. And I agree with this. There's ownership and accountability in that, which usually means better uptake of new ideas and initiatives. The use of storytelling was quite key. 
But these stories need to be the stories we need to tell, not the stories we want to tell, as this helps leaders to be vulnerable. Leadership is a way of being. You need to be good and do good, and do so with spirit and energy. David believes we just need to ensure we have good people as leaders. The rest they can learn. Good people care, which clearly David does. He talked about responding to every human who is open in front of him. He tries to open his heart to them if they're willing to open theirs. Rather than be a teacher, David sees himself as a facilitator or a creator of conditions conducive to people flourishing, or as he also termed it, fostering transformation. Again, this is absolutely the role of a leader. If you've not yet watched the whole of the interview, I recommend doing so. And please pass this on to anyone that you know who may have an interest in leadership. There may be leaders in your part of the world who could benefit from David's wisdom, if you get my drift. So send them a link and see what happens. If you have watched it, hopefully you've been able to take many insights away that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work and legacy. Use it. Share it with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change which is necessary if we are to enhance our life's work. I hope you are happy, safe and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that is a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.